Hi, I'm Tim Sonova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by another amazing duo of humans, Mark Bavmudi-Joseph and Lisa Yancey. Lisa is a strategist, social impact entrepreneur, community builder, and visionary who believes that people build legacies in a lifetime. She is the president of Yancey Consulting and co-founder of SourceMed and The Wheeze Match, and is one of the most incredible people that I know. Bamudi is a 2017 TED Global Fellow, an inaugural recipient of the Guggenheim Social Practice Initiative, and an honoree of the United States Artist Rockefeller Fellowship. While managing a successful artistic career, Bamudi also proudly serves as Vice President and Artistic Director of Social Impact at Washington, D.C.'s Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Without further ado, Bamudi and Lisa, welcome to the show. Hey. Peace, <laughs> Good morning. Ish. Good morning. So it's so good to see both of your faces here this morning. And our first question to our guests is always, how are you and how is your community doing during this pandemic? I'll start on that one. I am wonderfully well. I'm just grateful for health. <laughs> Let's start there. The fact that I can be here and have this conversation with each of you. My community and my communities, because they're plural, grateful, are well. My family is primarily in Atlanta with a crazy governor. I can just say that. <laughs> and they're actually doing well, so I'm happy about that. And I'm happy to be in New York with, I feel like, one of the best governors that's showing up in that state and showing what to do. So all is good here. I'm in Oakland, California. So my geographical community is also benefiting from progressive political leadership. I would say that when I think about community in terms of racial demographics specifically, I would say that our community is reeling just given the proportion of infection in the Black community, the impact of COVID on the prison population, and of course, the trauma of Ahmaud Arbery's killings and murder in Georgia. So these are complex times for sure. But all these factors of um, the intersectionality don't stop. I've been thinking a lot about the racial timeline of this pandemic, because it does seem to me that the reactions, and I'm holding two things at once. One is that we have very, very little data about this virus, like mm -hmm. real tangible data. But the data that we have says that it's obviously just killing black and brown people, primarily because of poor health opportunities and pre-existing conditions. And as people are realizing that Black people are dying, it's like, let's open this thing back up and just let them continue to die. And the lack of value on Black lives, even during a pandemic, seems to really be coming to the fore right now. Beautifully said. I don't want to be reductive and I don't want to say that I speak for the entire Black community, but you don't? that's my direct response. That's why we that. invited you here to speak for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, normally that's what I do. Like That's kind of the, the gig of being a Black intellectual in the art. <laughs> Represent. I think that in this piece of the conversation is that the fact that it's, it didn't just start with this pandemic, I'm very mindful in all of our conversations that this Black Lives Matter, this is pre and unfortunately it is pre. And mm -hmm. so what we expect, so Lauren, you're surprised. You're like, I can't, people are still devaluing lives. It's not a surprise for me because this isn't necessarily the kind of disruptor that's going to create aha in human value and equity. And so I know that where I am, I don't like to use hope because hope is not a strategy, but I'm going to, for lack of a better word, where I'm hoping that we do the work 
or enhance mindfulness of our pre-existing conditions and the results of that enhanced mindfulness of staying present to the inequities that consistently exist, the weaponization that happens in police force, the enhanced mindfulness that just because we start seeing where we are, where globally we could all be impacted by a virus, that the inequities still exist and continue to and that what we're going to do about it. So not leave it at COVID because it didn't start with COVID. So, Lisa, I know that you run a number of organizations that are remote and dispersed. But mostly, I know less about how you work. But I am curious about, as folks who manage, has the pandemic shifted your style of work or your leadership style? I what the pandemic has done, because as you know, I've worked remotely for over a decade. Nancy Consulting is 19 years old this year. And so there's this notion of being mobile in the part of work. But what the pandemic has done is that now everyone is remote. So at least there were moments where you had meetings in place, in different places. And so it created a different rhythm of how much time I spend in front of a computer talking to people. The energetic exchange that is a part of the communication that happens when you're facilitating and provoking and opening up and ideating together. We have to find how to find that energy in this modality, that's changed. I feel like my day starts on Mondays and don't end until that day didn't end until Friday Like it's constant. Like there are no ebbs and flows. It just starts and I'm like, okay, after I open our conversation, like it ends. And so I'm feeling that density of engagement. That's different. What about you, Lindsay? As a performing artist, so much of my value, so much of my currency is in my body. And I spent the better part of really the last 20 years moving from space to space because what I do hopefully is transform space with word or with movement, the chemistry, just kind of the chemical transformation of sweat, of idea launched into intimate spaces. So part of my work is gathering people But the work where I feel probably most fulfilled is in embodying ideas and transformation. So without my physical body present with gigs canceled, because my physical labor and my physical presence has been my currency in the marketplace, not only have I had to practically reevaluate, but also philosophically reevaluate just what the value of my body is which given the earlier part of the conversation is itself a charged concept, but it's true. So I think that's been the thing. It's just working with presenters, with producers, with organizers to try to figure out if I'm not going to be physically on your stage, how much are these same words worth? And we're all trying to figure out the economy of that together. And then COVID has impacted me specifically in terms of my administrative job, because the Kennedy Center has furloughed just about 70% of its staff for what I would call fiscally responsible reasons. And so many of us are in transition, also trying to figure out what the value of our work is. What's the difference between the work and the job? And without the job, how does the work continue? without a place, without context like this? And how do some of the things that we were doing in social impact at the Kennedy Center still resonate if that is in the container for our principles? So currency, the body, 
the ephemerality of all these ideas and just trying to figure out how to put a kind of value statement on these valued principles. I want to highlight some love coming from our chat. Some of our greatest minds and hearts here. Thank you for the comment. Totally agree. As you were talking, Bamuti, so those who know me know that I have a background in dance. And those who know me as a facilitator know that often I talk about how I move from my body and the mm-hmm. center of where I feel starts in my cavity. And I know that those who may not move in the body because there are a lot of visual based and other types of discipline based artists and creatives and innovators, engineers, entrepreneurs probably listening to this as well who create in different modalities. As you were talking about, I was thinking about how this idea of this sheltering in place, mm-hmm. even the, I feel that this notion of social distancing is oxymoronic. You're like social, but be distant. What does that mean? And then what does it mean for people who are socially quarantined, distant by themselves, i.e. me, in a home where you live and move in the body and you engage energetically in space. And so there's the work element of those who practice and in their practice, their currency is directly connected to their physical being in form. And then there's the regular human, where my people at? Can we hang and have drinks and laugh and kick it and decompress? in mining all the craziness because that's a part of our emotional equalizer and safeguard anchoring. And so that body piece is lost too. So we can talk about our work and our leadership, but we're straight up humans (laughs) in this too. And how all are managing the post-traumatic realities that's going to happen as a result of this, that those of us who are actively and consciously mining our balance and presence are just kind of putting in our bodies. Like it's in our bodies. We're holding this in our bodies. And so where are we going to have those release? Great. Thank God for D-Nice and other kind of dance parties. But we're doing that in our, I'm like, I'm dancing around in my own house still by myself and being excited about someone else clicking a join with a heart. So these technology is becoming this translation where our translation would be verbal, physical sweat, emotional passion that's not being fed. And that definitely is playing into all that we do. Yeah, I totally second the comment about the dopeness that is Lisa Yancey here. Well, Lisa, can I tag on to this one? Because you and your incredible colleague, Yolita, have been hosting weekly online community gatherings every Friday. And you describe them as spaces that are designed for individuals to ideate, be heard, find breath, just be, just sit. And you've been doing this for a number of weeks. What's resonating from these convenings that that you're bringing together? I think the biggest thing that resonates from those conversations is love. I want to just say that. There's so much love. Internally, we decided we wanted to facilitate a space that is open for anyone who may or may not want to join. It is a no pressure zone. Typically, when I work, I say language like one of the agreements is silence is not consent. So I expect you to actually use your voice to hear. But in this space, you can be completely wherever you are in silent and that we all bring intellectual assets that is not just doesn't live in one place. And so how do we aggregate and accumulate all of those assets that we hold from all of our experiences? And it's been a beautiful space where across what there are four time zones in the United States, at least three time zones show up every week. And from all over, people coming together to to talk about whatever they want to talk about. We don't lead with titles. 
you just show up however you are and just come together. So it's love. It's lots of love. When you get to the end of the week, when you've been zoomed out, (laughs) you've been too much, it doesn't feel like I'm in another. It's not another. It is like I'm home. And that energy that I referenced earlier that's being compromised where I can't kick it with my girls. I'm a traveling human. I am a wandering earth person and I've been grounded. And I feel like I'm in the corner. Someone said Lisa in the corner. Lisa don't do well in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) But these conversations (laughs) allow us to be across space and in space. And I'm grateful for everyone who joins and the ideas that get shared in that way. Bamudi, in one of your TED Talks, a quote is, soccer is like the only thing on this planet that we can all agree to do together. It's Mm -hmm. like the official sport of this spinning ball. I'm wondering, I think that was maybe two or three years ago that you gave that talk. You also talked about creating a sports-based political action curriculum for youth that uses, among other things, the politics of joy. As you think about that talk that you gave a couple of years ago, the politics of joy coming together around something like soccer or, or shared humanity on this globe, what's resonating for you right now in this moment? The program that we did was in partnership with the Guggenheim and it came out of my residency there. And the company of Pilota and I were able to work in schools and around the country from Maui to Raleigh, North Carolina, to the Bronx, working with immigrant youth around what we call the politics of joy. And part of the impetus there was my first blood memory of joy was scoring a goal on the soccer field when I was maybe five or six years old. And I don't know if any of you watch professional football or ever seen the reaction of an amateur or professional football player after they score. It's probably the closest thing to total mania that we can kind of share in public. And so the premise was if we can locate or co-locate an exposure to culture in that same space where joy is kind of ingested and manifested, then we're creating a kind of psychic continuum where folks who have been marginalized because of their immigrant status or because of their first generation status can understand that the culture that they bring, the culture that they love has some continuity in terms of a sheltering from the outside world. When I think broadly about the politics of joy, Lisa mentioned the club quarantine and the versus concerts have been great. The whole Babyface versus Teddy Riley thing, Tomorrow Night, Jill Scott versus Erica Badu. That's the appointment viewing at this point. Those are the spaces where we can feel like we do have some level of cultural synthesis besides the cutthroat politics. So I welcome the opportunity to continue to design those spaces, to move them from kind of the secular tactile space to the virtual space, and then eventually back to kind of the live co-located space. Um, And that design of live co-located space is going to be really important. Lisa mentioned, talked about a collective trauma that we're experiencing. And something that I think she and I both believe in is that we can design our way to joy and that the art sector And the vector of art spaces have been the places where we've decided that design is most resonant and most viable. So that's the thing that I look forward to building, hopefully in intention around the community design where joy isn't so political, that joy is the healing act that ameliorates the trauma that we're all experiencing. 
We have a question. I'm going to throw it up here and read it. What if interdependence becomes trendy just for this moment? Do you have recommendations for how we can fold interdependence into the DNA of our institutions and organizations? Thanks for the question. Thanks for the amazing chat that's going on right here. Our guests can't see this, but it's exciting. So back to the question. Lisa and I worked on this project, a fledgling project where we essentially were co-visioning the unification of a performing arts center, a performing arts organization and a visual arts organization in Brooklyn a number of years ago. And I had the privilege and the opportunity of suggesting what the administrative structure, do you remember this? Yeah, totally. Uh, What the administrative structure might be. And we talked about an executive director, but we talked about a director of the political imagination. We talked about a director of art-framed economies. And we talked about a director of creative excellence. And we said that the curation of this art space would need those three working in concert with their community. So creative excellence, art-framed economies, and the political imagination. And so to respond to the question, which I think is a poignant one, we cannot extract out of this moment the DNA or the genetics that precipitated it. But we can be future thinking about how we reorganize leadership structures and the purpose and mandates, certainly of our performing arts center, but just our cultural centers, period. So you might have had a director of the performing arts. You might have had someone that curated dance. And those positions are going to be incredibly necessary. But if the proscenium theater or the gallery is still the beating heart of your organization after this is over, then you're doing it wrong. We have a new mandate to bring people together in a different kind of way. And so we can't be politically inert. We can't not think about our financial acuity as it relates to our organizations. And we also have to spark not just the political imagination, but the creative imagination too. So I don't think it's as much of a DNA question as it is a mutation. Now that we're all X-Men, what's our superpower going to be? And X-Women. And so what I'll add to the dopeness of Amuti is what he's saying is this notion of trend, period, there is nothing that is singularly reliant on itself. Nothing. Everything relies on something else. And so I think one of the first anchors to even getting to a place where you can reimagine structurally, whether it's leadership, whether it's departmental engagement, whether it's cross-culture and community, whether it's residency, if you don't hold as an anchor value the notion of the interdependence and togetherness as a core reliance for your whole existence, then your thinking has been completely compromised. Anything else that follows from that is shallow and it can't even be strategic because you can't even begin to identify where you are in relationship to others and where collectively you hold strength. Mm. Um, I had two conversations this week, one with an individual, an amazing artist who talked about togetherness and the importance of togetherness and how this is amplifying and could be amplifying the opportunity for us to strengthen our practice and valuing of togetherness, not as a hobby, not as the thing you do on the side, not as a program, a separate party, but the togetherness as a core understanding of how you function and where your value proposition as an institution and as individuals in those institutions live. And the other conversation was about the connectivity tissue. And so one of those conversations is that it was a conversation of different cohorts 
that are allied in solidarity, but still within the silos of those various different areas. And what we haven't done in strengthening from an infrastructure place, the practice and tools around the connectivity tissue of that interdependence. So interdependence is language without tools. We need to strengthen the tools of how we apply interdependence that's beyond an intellectual framework and that the value of how we understand whether we're hitting our performance indicators or whatever thing, our milestones, whatever that thing is, if it isn't hinged on what's happening with others within the ecosystem of your existence, then it's compromised. It's shallow. It is not maximizing its potential results. And I think our work is to build the tools and the language and the constructions for that connectivity tissue to not just be an idea. Sorry, you want to toss it to the social impact question? I just want to take a moment. There are moments in my life when I think, how the hell did I get here? This just happens to be one of them where you realize, I don't know what sequence of events led me to be able to be sitting and listening to this conversation, but this is really amazing. With that over, it's a two-parter here. Both of you work on social impact. Question here is, can you please define what that has meant and the opportunities and the pitfalls? Way to go, Sita. If I may, how we define social impact. At the Kennedy Center, I define impact more by our processes than outcomes. So I think the a community engagement paradigm, which is where I've lived in the performing arts sector, kind of the intersection of performance curation and community engagement, generally that has been measured. The effectiveness has been measured by how many folks are in the room. But what I've learned from elders, mentors, and through experience is that its impact is much less about how many people, but how you treat people and how materially the processes have enough integrity that folks are able to organize without you. So providing conduits in a healthy way, in a way with integrity for folks to be empowered in their bodies, particularly marginalized communities. I think therein, those are the opportunities and the pitfalls. The larger an organization is, generally, the further away it is from skin in the game. And there is no impact on an institutional level if there isn't shared risk and shared accountability. So I would say that. I would also say that I'm currently making a work. I'm making an opera. Bill T. Jones is directing this commission by a new performing arts center in New York. And the opera is scheduled to premiere, I would want to say in 21, 22. I have no idea whether building an opera right now is the right thing to do because the opera that I'm writing requires like 60 people to be on stage and you'd imagine hundreds of people in the audience. So impact work means I think deploying artists in a different way so that maybe instead of making work for proscenium, artists are being deployed in systems innovations through the lens or through the conduit of these institutions so that we're thinking as artfully about what happens outside of a theater using the resources of the theater as what happens inside of proscenium stage as well. So impact is about redirection of creative resources to rethink our shared culture. What I'll add, when I think about impact, ultimately I think about whomever the system wasn't designed for, are they having the, do we, because I believe it's not designed for a, a me, whomever live at what we often in our language call margins, 
but I want to just get rid of the jargon. Ultimately, impact means that everybody gets to live the life that they imagine for themselves. Amen. Full stop. Impact means that everyone, everyone gets to live the life that they imagine for themselves. That opportunities are presented for you to show up in your whole self with all of your differences, with all of our differences, none of it being a measurement and defining of what is or isn't normal. All of those constructions is comparative to some kind of creative singular center. And I believe that social impact is when we have an inclusive society where mm. everyone has the opportunity to be their, live their best lives. Amen. In terms Good. of pitfalls and opportunities, I think that we are in, we have been, I'm mindful in my language about elevating COVID and this pandemic as more than a disruptor that's fracturing some basic understandings. But there have been and consistently has been inequities and different realities that has compromised people's ability to live their best lives consistently, systematically, pragmatically, emotionally, health, lots of them, financially. And so in terms of opportunities and pitfalls, I think that we've been moving in an opportunity to decenter the singularity of things, this mm. no binary, black, white, gay, straight, female, male. We've been doing that work to untangle and embrace more fluidity and even getting language and tools around intersectionality that we need to continue to do to eviscerate the centering of anything and even the idea of inclusion because mm. the notion of inclusion centers something to be included in. And that in of itself is problematic because you're saying you're outside and you set this thing as the standard of which you want to become a part of. That's problematic. And so I think the opportunity is to just continue to interrogate all of those constructions that doesn't allow for the fluidity and variety. And the pitfall would be is to fall into a place where even in our language that feels like we are just begin to mirror the same kind of exclusionary practice that centers a single thing. And it could seem like an unintended consequence of being righteous and still hold behaviors that we haven't shed enough of, stay transparent and embracing of difference. A couple of things are really clear. One, as Tim said, amazing conversation. Two, if we get renewed for season two by our distributor, y'all will have to be our first guests up. <laughs> there's so much more that we've got to talk about, but we do have to wind this episode down. So I'll leave you with a question, a little dreaming question, I suppose. Your entire life, you've been carrying around a suitcase, a figurative suitcase that's got all of these habits, behaviors, things you've always done to center yourself. And so the question is, What's one thing that has been in your suitcase for a long time that's coming out? And what's one new habit, behavior, thing you do, practice that you're holding dear that you're going to put into that suitcase for the rest of your life coming out of the pandemic? I know one thing that's coming out of my suitcase is dumbass Facebook friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been on social media more because I'm at the crib. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I'm shocked by how many of my... Facebook, quote, friends are conspiracy theorists. Listen, I voted for Elizabeth Warren in the primary here. You know what I'm saying? I was set to ride for Bernie, but Mike Flynn is free and unemployment is at 15%. And all y'all that are just like riding for the, you got to earn my vote people and all the conspiracy pandemic people got to go. Y'all ain't just Facebook. <laughs> 
<laughs> on notice. <laughs> they are gone. What am I keeping? Smoothies. <laughs> Man, just the mornings are a little bit longer. They're a little bit more luxurious. And there isn't the need for coffee like there used to be. So smoothies. Even smoothies and getting rid of you, my conspiracy theorists. Marginalized. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go! How'd you get in here? (laughs) What I'm taking out of the suitcase is the pressing need for urgency. This idea that this got to get done. This got to happen. This they have to. I need to deliver this thing out because for a whole bunch of reasons that could be a whole other podcast. I won't go that what I'm putting in and keeping that has replaced that sense of urgency is the stillness and you said luxurious Bamuti, the luxury I actually want to take it out of it being luxurious because it feels like it's exceptional like it's something that happens on occasion. I want to keep in my long conversations with my family, my nieces and nephews that I didn't ever have time for like I now have Sunday conversations with my nephew every Sunday, no matter what. If my niece WhatsApp me, I am available, no matter what. If I could be in a meeting and someone who I care about calls, I'll answer it and just like, I'm going to call you back. I don't just believe it. I'm keeping in the human connections as the priority and the work. Time is in the service of us. And so remembering that, not getting lost in deliverables, but staying connected to loves, even if it feels like it's a whatever. I've never been the one to call like professional or unprofessional. But this notion of I always have time for you because mm-hmm. I love you and you love me back. That right. is what I'm keeping. Amazing. God, I don't know how to wrap this up, but profoundly thankful for the time that you've been able to spend with us today. Wish you could see the chat that's going on. A lot of love that's being sent your way. Bamuti, Lisa, thank you so much for being with us on the show. Thank you for having us and asking us. Yes. I yes. love you so much. I can be with Bamuti. Love you, Lisa. Be safe. Bye. Love you. Continue the Workshop Suck Live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Darren Walker. Misses in the meantime, you can download more Work Shouldn't Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck live episodes over on workshouldn'tsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, Thanks for listening.